Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast. I'm Paul Smith and in this episode I'm joined by a critically acclaimed novelist who before becoming a writer spent 20 years as a nurse and she joins us here in the Penguin studio to talk about a phenomenal new book, The Language of Kindness, which looks at nursing, part memoir, part history and part philosophy. It's Christy Watson. Christy, welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. Christy, you've brought along a number of objects that have influenced your life in writing, which we'll reveal shortly. Firstly, though, you've previously written two critically acclaimed novels, Tiny Sunbirds Far Away and Where Women Are Kings, and you've now turned to your own experiences as a nurse. Why did you want to share these experiences? There were a number of reasons, really. I always wanted to write something about nursing, and I always wanted to write something non-fiction, and I didn't put two and two together, but my agent very cleverly had a light bulb moment and said, I think we should do this as a project and I went looking in the library welcome library and the British library for narrative non-fiction written by nurses and I found a whole plethora of narrative non-fiction written by doctors and much of it I I love but I couldn't find a single nurse's book written from the perspective of a nurse except Florence Nightingale's book (laughs) so I realized there was a gap in the market and I thought that it was very important that we hear the voice of a nurse. In the language of kindness, you take the reader on a tour of labyrinthine hospital wards and departments, with each chapter focusing on a different specialism or part of your career. Why did you land on this as a structure? Structure was the biggest problem for me, because as a novelist, I didn't really give it much thought, but in non-fiction, it's incredibly important, and I became slightly obsessed with the architecture of time and the architecture of a book, and... I think going from birth to death was a great structure and it came to me quite quickly, but that obviously meant that my own memories and my own timeline as a nurse wasn't linear. So it was a challenging but straightforward prospect uh, and I thought that going through the hospital in a quite a fast pace would actually solve some of the structural issues, almost like going into your memory in your own mind. Yeah, um, at the centre of the book are some very emotional encounters with patients. And in the first chapter, we meet Betty, an elderly lady who's just been admitted to hospital for assessment. Let's take a listen to that now. If a couple have been married for a lifetime, it often happens that when one dies, the other dies soon afterwards. We can't write broken-hearted on the cause of death forms, of course, but that's what I believe it to be. Broken-hearted people stop taking care of themselves. They don't eat, wash, sleep. They are between worlds, cold with grief. I discover that Betty has no family to rally round her like my nan did after my granddad died to make sure that she eats meals and has comforting hugs and keeps warm and to give her sleeping tablets and soup. There's a physiological response to grief and the sweet tea that is offered when someone is in a state of shock actually helps the patient's blood sugar rise to a non-dangerous level. Sweet tea can prevent seizure, coma, even death. And people's blood sugar drops in response to serious illness, grief or shock more often than you'd imagine. It is not necessarily related to diabetes at all and is easy to fix. But if missed, it can be disastrous. Betty is completely alone in her flat now, which explains her state of health and her chest pain more than any machine can. That was an extract from the audiobook of The Language of Kindness, written and read by my guest, Christy Watson. How did you find reading your book out loud? We touched upon it before the podcast started. The most difficult thing I found was that every time I read particularly emotional parts of the book, 
I stumbled on my words much more. Yeah. So obviously that's a subconscious reaction to grief and trauma, but it meant that I had to then keep going back over the most difficult times yeah. in my life. So that was quite a challenging thing. But I'm very glad to have the opportunity to, to read the audiobook myself. Out of the thousands of stories that you must have heard as a nurse and have experienced yourself, did you find it hard to pick the ones which would help the narrative go along and be in the book? I think you hit on something there because actually there are so many stories. There are probably another 10 books, really, of things that I can remember, but some patients definitely stick with you longer than others. And it might be because they remind you in some way of your own family or you had a particularly positive or a particularly difficult relationship with them or their family or there was a situation which which went either very well or very badly. So I picked the most obvious anecdotes and memories and I picked the patient stories which I felt were representative of that time rather than trying to make the stories fit the narrative. I made the narrative fit the stories, if that makes sense. As a writer, did that help you? Is it a cathartic experience? I think that I felt better having written the book. I certainly got to the end and thought, wow, I need some (laughs) counselling, which was quite a revelation. It was cathartic in one way, but it also opened my eyes to the amazing work that all nurses do on a daily basis. Can you tell us a bit more about, I mean, you've changed everybody's name in the book with patient confidentiality, but there's, at the start of your career, there's Derek, a psychiatric patient. As a nurse coming across something like that must have been quite disturbing. Yeah, I've changed all sorts of things to protect people's personal details, so names, genders, ages, all kinds of things. But Derek, at the start of the book, was a patient who I looked after who was suffering from schizophrenia. And psychiatric nursing has changed an awful lot, but mental health still has some way to go, I think, as we all appreciate. And he was in an acute admissions ward when I looked after him, and ended up um, having some insight into his illness and we thought he was getting better but actually he tried to take his own life when I was there and he cut open his arm and was just bleeding and bleeding everywhere. So it was incredibly traumatic at the time. I remember thinking that I really hated the sight of blood when I went into nursing and then suddenly in my first placement I was there covered in blood. But the most important thing about looking after Derek was just seeing how much he was suffering, how he was powerless and how much help he needed and how vulnerable he was. So Derek is one of the people that will always stay with me. Did you worry that you'd chosen the wrong career at that point? I think everyone was worried that I'd chosen the wrong career. I spent my early years changing my mind about careers all the time. But I always, from the moment I started nursing, knew that nursing would be for me. I just didn't quite think that psychiatric nursing was my thing. And the good thing about nursing is it's so wide and varied that... There is a role for everybody. Even people that want to work in a research lab, for example, can still be nurses. But there are such a variety of roles that I'm lucky enough to have worked in lots of different areas throughout my career. Of course, we can't talk about nursing without talking about Florence Nightingale. And we've got a photograph here, your first object to discuss today. And it's a statue of Florence Nightingale. What is the, the personal significance to you of this, of this particular statue? Well, this statue was at St Thomas's Hospital where I spent many years working and there's also a statue there of Mary C. Cole and there are, there are lots of nursing historical figures dotted around the hospital. But I particularly chose Florence Nightingale's statue because she was a famous nurse, as we all know, but she was also a famous statistician. 
which is a very hard word to say. Yeah, you're doing well there. <laughs> Thank you, I took a bow then. Um, and sh- I think that she'd have much to say about politics today. Particularly, I was thinking recently of the 6.5% pay rise that's been offered to nurses after many, many years of no pay rise and the fact that, uh, for example, inflation is currently at 3%. So mm-hmm. I think she'd have much to say about politics, about uh, how undervalued nurses are, and the fact that she she was not only a, a brilliant nurse, but she was a brilliant statistician, a brilliant political figure, and uh, one of the very first feminists. And she said uh, she was required to be a hostess and maintain a lovely home, but instead she went off to Scutari to war, uh, and she said at that point that her present life was suicide. So she actually ran off and chose a very different life and one that wasn't expected for her at all. Was, did writing the book allow you to reevaluate what you thought about Florence Nightingale and your idea of what she was and what she could be for yeah, future that, generations? Absolutely. And also many, many nurses throughout history whose voices that we haven't really heard from I love the idea that uh, the book allowed me to dip into history about nursing. And it's a very female, very strong and powerful voice. I was at the Royal College of Nursing this morning and looking at this hall of fame of nurses in the past, just looking out of you. Some of them are very austere looking, actually. But remarkable women who fought for women and for nursing over many, many decades and, and have been little spoken about. Well, there are some things that never change in nursing. Clearing up after the body has reacted in really extreme ways to illnesses, for example. And there's a particular passage in the book where you explore coming to terms with that. Let's hear it now. The horror of our bodies, our humanity, our flesh and blood is something nurses must bear lest the patient thinks too deeply. Remember the lack of dignity that makes us all vulnerable. It is our vulnerability that unites us. Promoting dignity in the face of illness is one of the best gifts a nurse can give. I'm reminded of the very beginning of the Nursing and Midwifery Code of Professional Conduct, Clause 1.1. Nurses must treat patients with kindness, respect and compassion. Dignity has been much written about from a philosophical perspective. Immanuel Kant, for example, described the inherent and equal worth of every individual. And dignity is central to most religious beliefs, with the Protestant and Catholic churches both citing that all human beings created in the image of God have dignity. In Islam, the Prophet Muhammad is also reported to have said that Adam was created in God's image. And human dignity is also a central consideration of Judaism. Dignity and nobility are part of each human's birthright. You talk about Kant there. Was philosophy part of your training or was it something that you came to when writing the book? I don't think it was explicitly part of my training. And when I went into nursing, I certainly was wide-eyed and optimistic and enthusiastic, but had a very warped view of what the job actually was. And I believed it to be about technology and medical cure and things like biochemistry But actually, nursing is much more about art and politics and philosophy. And that realisation came to me over a number of years and much life experience. And I think that nursing doesn't seek to cure in the way that medicine does. It's very, very different. And the things at the heart of nursing, the philosophical ideas about why we're here and how we should live, are something that is, is not really taught enough, I think, to nurses. 
I think that nursing is changing overall and the nature of us is changing. The things that we suffer from collectively now are not necessarily curable. So we are suffering with existential angst and crippling anxiety and loneliness and old age, like we heard from Betty. I think that in itself, nursing has to change with that and become much more about those aspects at the heart of nursing, which is kindness, compassion and care. And we're moving into an age where actually those three components are perhaps even more important than the medical model that we've always lived by. Yeah, it goes back to what you were saying about peer rises and what that reflects and how we value what nurses do. So it, it seems to me that, you know, if you don't pay people and value what they're doing, then that could lead to a loss of, of, of kindness, which seems to be going to the, the core of what the book's about, really. I think so. And it's a massive worry, actually. We've got nurses leaving the NHS faster than they're arriving. And it's an international problem, not just in the UK. So in America, there are going to be a million nurses short by the mid-2020s. And this represents a public health crisis that needs addressing right now. And as you say, if we don't value nurses and the heart of what nursing is, then international health systems will collapse. It really is that vital. OK. We'll go to your next object now, which is your fob watch, which, to describe it to the listeners, it's the, as I know it, the little, the little watch that goes at the top of, of a nurse's lapel. Why did you bring that? And is it something that all nurses get? Is it a mandatory thing? I think all nurses get a fob watch at the beginning of their training because you can't wear a watch on your wrist and you need to know about time. And in checking somebody's pulse and things, you have to look at seconds. But I wanted to bring this to represent a number of things and represent the passing of time and traditional values in nursing, which I think are changing and less valued perhaps than they were. And I do remember when I started, and it might be that I've got rose-tinted glasses because that does happen over time, but I remember a time when cleanliness was really important and good patient care and listening to patients and, and, and making sure that their needs were put above everything else was, was possible, not just because of time constraints, but because of what the nurse expected to do. And I certainly, I used to work with a nurse who went round the hospital at night touching the televisions to see if the night nurses had been watching the television. Mm -hmm. So if the TV was warm, you, you were in absolute trouble. And I remember wearing a belt that was quite constricted. And if you were seen without your belt at three o'clock in the morning even, then again, you were in trouble. So I think those things have changed, but some things haven't changed at all. And the thing about the FOB watch is it reminds me that nursing is, the, is one of the oldest professions in the world. And it's one of those professions that doesn't really change all that much. Uh, medicine changes an awful lot but nursing has stayed the same since the beginning of time and it will stay the same until long after we're gone and it stays the same across not just time but across borders and across countries the heart of nursing is care compassion and kindness and that doesn't really change so it's a career that it it hasn't really changed all that much or it shouldn't change all that much I think. Presumably when your fob watch was still pretty new you Tell us about how you nursed Aaron, a 14-year-old who had a heart-lung transplant. And there's a particularly thought-provoking moment where you explore the line between medical and intangible results of surgery. We'll talk more about that in just a moment, but let's hear about it first. Medics are sceptical about most things, including the idea that the heart houses memory. And the evidence supports this. The heart is simply a bunch of nerves, muscles and chemicals. A study of 47 heart transplant patients like Aaron found that, 
Although 15% of patients felt their personality had changed following transplantation, even that was attributable to having suffered and survived a life-threatening event, and most other information related to the heart housing or being linked to emotion is completely anecdotal. But art, literature and philosophy have been searching for greater meaning about the heart for more than 4,000 years, since ancient Egyptians believed that the heart symbolised truth. After death, they would weigh the heart against a feather of truth, to be eaten by a demon if the scales did not balance, leaving the person's soul restless for eternity. In this post-truth world, I wonder what will happen to our souls. We have nothing to weigh our hearts against. Nurses do not explicitly search for meaning, but meaning is part and parcel of their day job. Nurses certainly use the language of the heart. They understand and describe patients as broken-hearted. Many nurses have seen it. And the best nursing comes from the heart and not from the head. In thinking about the heart as the essence of a person, you found a metaphor for the practice of nursing. Do nurses who've seen so much life and death need to search for a deeper meaning? You never find answers to questions, you just find more questions. So the more meaning you find, the more you search for meaning, I think. And nurses certainly live with their eyes wide open and are exposed to all kinds of things, but it does make you question life in, in a heightened way, particularly if you're seeing senseless suffering. Presumably you never stop learning, which brings us on to your next object, which is a miniature book on nursing. It looks very quaint and something maybe 1940s, 50s. Uh, Can you explain the significance of this, please? My publisher found this in a second-hand shop and produced it to me. And I had been saying for some time in various interviews that there wasn't a memoir written in the UK from a nurse and I can't believe that there's this huge gap in the market and what does that say about gender and what does that say about everything? And then suddenly I was presented with this memoir written from a nurse which is about the size of a small espresso cup and the interesting thing is that the writing is not dissimilar to mine. Uh, I'll read the first line. She was a born nurse. How often we've heard that phrase, well, I was not. And I thought, (laughs) my goodness, not only has it been written before, but it's almost identical. So it did teach me something about um, the fact that everything we think we're doing for the first time has obviously been done and not much has actually changed since the 50s in nursing. And so do you think there's a a tone that is specific to nurses? Um, Do you recognise it elsewhere? I do. I think that nurses have a very matter-of-fact, sometimes comes across quite hard tone and obviously use sarcasm to the maximum effect. (laughs) But we talked earlier, I spoke to one of your colleagues about the fact that life as a child of a nurse is also quite interesting because I think about my own children who just don't go to the GP and see it as a mythical place of hope and always want to go to the GP and who've never had a day off school because their pupils react, so they're fine. (laughs) Uh, And I think that that is a definitely a universal attribute of a child of a nurse, not just nursing. So there is a language and there is a way of being that most nurses would be able to spot another nurse in the room. Slightly loaded question. Can the essence of nursing be captured in one book? And is is it your book? I think that it's You can be big-headed if you want. You can say, uh, yep, I've nailed it. it, Well, the language (laughs) of nursing is really difficult to translate because it's quite abstract and metaphorical. 
I'm hoping that my book will be one of many because we should have many voices of nurses. And I really do hope that that happens. I don't think you can capture the voice of every nurse in one book, but I certainly think that I've captured my voice in this book. You say that you've enjoyed nursing and it made you feel alive, but the downside is participating in traumatic moments in patients' lives. And earlier on you talked about compassion fatigue. How common is this in nursing? I think it's amazingly common. And it's being recognised that, for example, there's a very high suicide rate amongst doctors and I don't think there's enough work going into mental health of nurses because it's a really tough job. And if you are working somewhere like accident and emergency or intensive care, you're exposed on a weekly basis to people dying. Mm -hmm. And it's not a usual thing to have to deal with. So there is a definite high rate of burnout and compassion fatigue that I've not only experienced, but I've seen in, in everyday practice that is yet to be dealt with or even talked about. And I certainly think that many nurses must suffer post-traumatic stress disorder on some level. Do you think that that's part of your own experience? Do you feel like you've had that post-traumatic stress? I think that I was certainly getting burnt out. I hope that I managed to be kind, even when I was feeling exhausted. But I think that it's something that I definitely struggled with, not feeling so much emotion as perhaps I should have felt. And Mm -hmm. at that time, I realised that it was taking its toll on me because if you get exposed to something repeatedly, you become quite numb. And obviously, that's a very bad way of being it's almost the opposite of living with your eyes wide open so I think it's very important that this is recognized and talked about for nurses everywhere because it is an issue yeah what, what kind of support do you think that you would have required or would, what you would have liked I think clinical supervision needs to happen for nurses it needs to be recognized that nurses who are working in those areas need to have someone to talk to they need to have access as doctors do for example for a 24-hour helpline there isn't such a thing for nurses at the moment so yeah. it's very practical things but on a, on a wider level nurses it's, it's still the most undervalued profession of all and media has a role in that and I think society has a role in that and so if we start valuing our nurses more then these things it's going to be easier to do the job. Do you ever wish you could forget some of the things that you've you've seen as a, a nurse? No, because I think a nurse is a witness. A nurse is a witness to all of life, and that is a really important part of nursing. I don't think it would be possible to forget some of the things I've seen, but I certainly wouldn't want to forget them, because actually that's forgetting the patient or the family that you worked with who actually went through that. And to be with them and to be part of it is actually an important role of the nurse. Well, we'll move on to the next object that you've chosen now. It is a fishing boat. I'm going to see a picture of it here. It's a nice little fishing boat with a red underside. I'm I'm showing my lack of sailing uh, (laughs) terminology here. Can you tell us why you've chosen this, this fishing boat? There are two reasons, really. The first is that I didn't start off wanting to be a nurse. I was desperate to be a marine biologist at one stage. When I discovered that marine biology involved studying plankton off the coast of Wales, then I had another think and I sort of fell into nursing. And I remember, because I'd been so flighty, my dad laughed out loud when I said I would be a nurse. And the second reason that I chose the fishing boat was back to my dad. And I really began to understand the importance of nursing six years ago when he was dying of cancer. And I looked at his nurse, Cheryl, and I realised what an absolutely remarkable job nursing is and how much difference it made to my family. 
one of the things that she did for my dad is she helped him prepare for what he wanted after death because nursing doesn't stop when you die, it carries on after death. Nurses are the ones that are left to look after the body but also prepare for his funeral. And my dad said that he wanted his ashes thrown off a fishing boat in the Irish Sea. And Cheryl, his nurse, said that obviously we'd need some permission for that whilst fully endorsing it on the other side. So she was just amazing in every aspect. And the fishing boat makes me think of, of where I started as a nurse and then where the book started, which was after my dad had died. Yeah, you get a real sense of you appreciating what Cheryl does for your dad. And there's some very touching moments between you and her in the book. But was it also hard to step back as as a nurse yourself and just let somebody else deal with those aspects? It was very difficult because, obviously, I, you can know too much about anything, and I knew too much. Cheryl was very good, as I'm sure all nurses are, with family members who are medical or nursing, and she took over everything and didn't let me do a single nursing thing for him. But she actually did let my mum do some nursing things, but my mum's not a nurse. So I think she recognised that it was very important for me to be a not a nurse, but just a daughter. And why did you leave nursing and, and start writing? So I'm still a registered nurse, although I'm not working clinically. I'm still obviously very much working within nurses and hopefully for nurses. But I started writing when my daughter was born. So when she was when I was on maternity leave, I did a beginner's creative writing class and wanted to write fiction. A lot of my fiction has also been about nursing issues, funnily enough. I don't think you can separate writing and, and nursing. I think they come from the same place. And both things are about storytelling. Both things are about discovering or trying to discover some kind of deeper meaning for your own life and then your character's lives or your patient's lives. So I think nursing and writing go hand in hand. And how do you feel your latest book will in, inform your next novel? Do you feel like you've learned something as a writer that will help your fiction from the memoir? I'm hoping it's not damaging because I was very good at not being in the least bit interested about structure and now I'm obsessed with structure. (laughs) I start looking at the architecture of books all the time. So I think that could be quite damaging for a novel where you do have to be a bit more free and see where the story takes you. And now I've become a bit of a planner, so I'm a bit worried about that. Well, there is a cyclical feel to the language of kindness. You start with the birth of your career. You explore the gamut of illnesses, both physical and mental, death and then birth again. After 20 years of nursing, what's your overarching impression of the human condition? Big question. (laughs) That's a very big question. I, I think that fundamentally we're good, we're kind. And for everything I've seen, uh, which is horror and tragedy, I've seen such love close up. And anyone who works in a hospital, whether they're nurses or porters or the person who works in the cafe, will see that when things are very, very challenging and when we are at these most extreme moments of life, human beings are capable of such profound kindness. And actually, we're all exactly the same. I agree. I should inform the listener that if they wanted to see any pictures of the objects that Christie's brought along today, you can join us on Facebook and you can also follow us on Twitter at Penguin UK Books. Christy, in terms of writing, what's next for you? I'm writing another proposal for another non-fiction book and it hasn't even crystallised in my head yet so I can't tell you much more than that I'm afraid. You're allowed to say that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm looking forward to hearing about it and reading it, whatever it might be. I agree that the book itself is, is very hopeful and, yeah, it's about the essence of, of what it is to be human at the, at, the, at the root of it, if that's not something 
That's not too profound a sign-off. Thanks for joining us today. It's been great to talk to you. Goodbye. Thank you. Goodbye. Taken out of school at 17 because of her family's survivalist way of living, Tara Westover had to educate herself and discover the joys of learning without the help of teachers and the inspiration of world events. There was a moment that winter. I was kneeling on the carpet, listening to Dad testify of Mother's calling as a healer, when my breath caught in my chest and I felt taken out of myself. I no longer saw my parents or our living room. What I saw was a woman grown with her own mind, her own prayers, who no longer sat childlike at her father's feet. A powerful coming-of-age story, Educated, is edifying and inspiring and is now available to download from Audible, iTunes and Kobo.